Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, Episode 128, Collateral Damage. So far in this overview of the Great Depression and its early effects, I've been covering the big movers and shakers that really leaned into wrecking the global economy. And this being well into the era of interconnected global trade, you can bet all the panic buttons being slammed by the big economies were going to have an effect on the rest of Europe. Which means from here on out, I'm going to start covering what were effectively the bystanders of Europe, the ones caught up in the mess rather than the ones who caused it. And since these will be smaller players, I'll be focusing a bit less on economics and more on the political and social fallout of the Depression. And to kick off this phase of the miniseries, we're going to be looking at what fascist Italy was up to during these first few years of the 30s. It's been a while since I put the spotlight on the Italians. I last left them with Benito Mussolini and his fascist cohort triumphant at home. Internal resistance had been quashed, King Victor Emmanuel was content to stand aside, and even the Pope had made peace with the sitting government. The business class was appreciative of being protected from their own workers, while the left wing of the fascist party that was interested in corralling capital had been removed from influence. That wasn't to say the Italian economy was booming, though. Its standard of living still hadn't recovered from the economic crisis at the start of the 20s. But most of the nation were content with the relative stability that had followed the fascist uh, rise to power. And in this, the other Western governments were rather appreciative towards Mussolini as well. The red two years after World War I had convinced nations like the U.S. and the U.K. that Italy was a basket case and that its population was unfit for democracy. Better to leave them to a strong man like Mussolini instead of letting them go communist. This was the same line of thinking used in Latin America as well, so it wasn't a policy without precedent. And this was during a time when the full implications of fascism were not fully grasped, so he wasn't seen as much of a threat. In fact, Mussolini was seen as an eminently reasonable moderate, a realist who could be worked with. Which, aside from the Corfu incident early on, was true enough. He operated cautiously in Europe through the 20s. The Great Depression, though, would prove to be a turning point for Mussolini and his regime. The crisis was played down as much as possible both internally and in boasts to foreign audiences. But in reality, the Depression rocked Italy badly. So badly, in fact, that the regime's alliance with the business class kind of proved to be moot, as state intervention was required to keep the economy afloat. And in doing so, the Italian government would become more involved than ever in managing enterprises, and the autarkic tendencies of the later 20s would be accelerated. Autarky being a term meaning a state of economic self-sufficiency, with the nation expected to rely on imports from abroad as little as possible for all goods. This wasn't just a self-reliance on principle thing either. The point to Mussolini was that the nation had to be prepared for war. War that he was intent on launching in both Ethiopia and the Balkans. And since in the League of Nations, the upfront penalty to aggressors was economic sanctions, it would be wise to rely on other trading partners as little as possible. And this aggression became almost a self-fulfilling prophecy, as Italy itself was resource-poor, and ergo, to achieve true self-sufficiency, it would have to expand elsewhere to get those resources. The story of Italy in the Depression is fairly straightforward. The nation was buffeted by a collapse in global trade and the financial markets, just like everybody else. Like France, Italy was unwilling to abandon the gold standard that kept their currency, the lira, stable. 
And also like the French, this was on account of the brush with inflation Italy had experienced in the early 20s. Unlike France, Italy did not have a booming export economy that had enough back orders to keep it afloat for years after 1929. They also weren't a destination for gold either, so reserves on hand to back the lira in circulation were already on shaky ground. Consequently, the Depression was immediately hard on the Italian people. In two years, from 1929 to 1931, GDP fell by 7%, industrial production by 20%, and unemployment doubled. Economists were at a loss in what they should do. The fascists certainly were no specialists themselves, but the near decade of binding the state to their will presented them with tools that were not available elsewhere in the West. With the business class at a loss, the fascist state moved to take direct control. An early order of business was the slashing of worker wages in 1930, which was then repeated again in 1934. The strong lira and economic collapse meant that prices were falling, but employers couldn't afford to keep paying their laborers at the same wages. If some workers were looking forward to lower prices for their goods, uh, their hopes were quickly dashed by state intervention against wages. This was not done evenly across the nation either. Those who worked in industry lost about 15% of their income, farmers a solid 20, and state employees only 12. Tariffs were thrown up, just as was already happening all over the world. Import quotas were instituted to keep what goods did come in to set amounts. A 40-hour work week was implemented in October 1934 in order to create more job openings. In addition, vast sums were invested in into public works, with the budgets for such projects tripling over their already considerable expenditures in the 20s. For a brief window, public works became the biggest expenditure of the state, outstripping even the military. While the fascists blustered publicly about there not being any issue with the economy, in practice, they scrambled to combat the crisis. A unique feature of the Italian response was the fascist drive towards expanding the corporatist framework within the economy. I touched on this last season, but to recap the topic, the corporatist idea held that the economy should be organized with three key components working in unison for maximum economic output and a minimum of class conflict. The three groups were the workers themselves, in the case of Italy, organized into syndicates that stood in for unions, there were the owners, and finally, the state, which would provide guidance to the other two. As I covered years ago now, in practice, this almost always meant the state siding with the owners in disputes, and the entire system was more a means of labor control than anything else. The workers of the nation were organized all right, but under state control. There were supposed to be corporatist councils where the three parties would hash out differences, but the representatives of the workers were never drawn from the actual proletariat, instead being hand-picked by the government. The Depression, though, added a new wrinkle as the owner class was itself brought to its knees. The response of the fascists was to take firms in a particular sector of the economy, like, say, steelmaking, and gather them up into a cartel broadly managed by the state. I say broadly because each operation's management still rested with the owners, but the market share of each economic sector was divvied up by the state so as to ensure enough business went everyone's way and prices didn't crash through the floor and ruin everyone. Existing commerce was still privately owned and operated, just that however much it could sell was restricted. And for existing firms, it was great. The Depression could have wiped all but the biggest of them out. It did, however, lock out those wanting to start a business up, as even when the government decided that expansion in a particular industry was desired, 
existing firms got first dibs on being authorized to do so. It was a strange system that revealed the contradictions of fascist Italy. Publicly, it was committed to maintaining capital supremacy. On the other hand, the state demanded total control so that the market didn't destroy itself. Through these tactics, Mussolini and his Ross party bosses boasted that fascism in Italy maintained stability and control, leaving the nation free from the disturbances that plagued so much of the rest of the world. But control did not undo the financial crisis that went hand-in-hand with the Depression. The Italian financial system was in deep with business owners and held large stakes in Italian industry. The failure of said industry threatened to ruin the nation's biggest banks, which required secret intervention by the state in order to prop them up. Billions were quietly transferred over to the banking sector, with only a handful of officials in both the government and finance privy to what was going on. That bit of conspiracy was obviously not a long-term solution. To counter the failures of Italy's own domestic financial markets, the Instituto Mobiliare Italiano was set up in November 1931 and authorized to issue billions of lira through the government in longer-term loans that established banks were reluctant to make in the given environment. But that was just the start. In January 1933, yet another fascist-controlled agency, the Institute for Industrial Reconstruction, or the IRI, was set up. This body would take the ownership stakes held by the banks and in exchange pay off their debts. In this manner, the financial sector's controlling interests in industry was transferred directly to the state. The banks were locked into only being able to make short-term loans to businesses. Longer-term ones of, say, a year or more would go through the financial institutions managed by the state, such as the Bank of Italy or the IMI. The financial sector was thus stabilized and brought further under under the control of Mussolini. The expansion of the fascist state's control over the economy coincided, too, with the broader movement's drive to expand its own reach. Augusto Tarotti, the fascist party secretary, had in the back half of the 1920s overseen a constriction of membership in the party, correctly perceiving new recruits as opportunists seeking advancement. Going into 1929, he began expanding the party ranks again, although this time, instead of accepting applicants, the party would instead seek out local notables and figures of influence and induce them to join up, which would in turn bind whatever contacts and friends they already had to the party. Essentially, this practice sought to absorb the nation's already existing and extensive social networks into the fascist party. This policy was carried on even after Tarati was removed from his post in 1930. Achille Staracci, upon becoming secretary in December 1931, though, went far further than his predecessor. Feeling secure in that the prominent of the nation were on board with the fascist program by the end of 1931, and perhaps recognizing that the party should be more visible in a time of great economic crisis, Staracci reopened the doors of membership to the general public. Party membership went from a million in 1932 to 1.8 in 1934, and 2.6 million in 1939, which put it at just around 6% of the total population. While this reproduced the old problem of opportunists joining the ranks, something that wasn't helped by laws implemented in 1932 demanding that government workers also join the party, it did make fascism a far more visible part of people's lives. It also brought in an influx of volunteers who would be expected to work all the harder for the state whose political party that they had voluntarily joined public displays of loyalty and devotion were increased, 
with fascist officials taking great care to make themselves visible and available to whatever locality they managed. Mass gatherings were common to impress the universality of the state and ideology and to have the public reaffirm their loyalties to both, something that was needed given the worsening economic situation. A little wrinkle threatening fascism's monopoly on public engagement was the influence of the Catholic Church. One of the last topics I covered for Italy last season were the latter impacts signed off on in February 1929. In addition to making the Vatican independent, it also made the Church the state religion, with it becoming a partner of fascist Italy. This brought a lot of prestige to Mussolini as it brought concordance between the nation's politics and religion, something that had been sorely missing in the liberal era. It was, though, ill-timed for the fascist party, as it was attempting to remake society more in its image. Initially, the fascist plan was to co-opt the clergy and the faithful and integrate them as another arm of the party. But the Catholic clergy were always on the lookout to advance their own interests, and the latter impacts gave them a free hand as partners of the state. It was especially the activities of the Catholic Action Group that raised concern in the party. The CA was and is an umbrella organization of Catholic social groups with their own specific memberships, whether it was, you know, workers, businessmen, what have you. What annoyed the hell out of the fascists, though, were the youth groups. The fascists wanted to indoctrinate the nation's youth. After all, they were the future. But the young fascists' organization suffered from low membership compared to Catholic action. Party leaders began attacking the Catholics in the press, accusing them of subversive activities. They even went to Mussolini and told him that the social groups in the CA were actually harboring disguised worker organizations outside the approved syndicates, and even direct anti-fascist political gatherings. Events boiled over in May 1931, when Pope Leo XIII implied within an encyclical that the Church knew best on matters of society and the economy, and that Catholic Action's advocacy of the Church's supremacy in public life was justified. This in turn provoked a wave of violence as the fascist party and young fascists took to the streets and started assaulting members of Catholic Action in their meeting places. Mussolini, in response, ordered the Catholic youth groups dissolved, although the CA for adults was allowed to continue. The Pope responded again in another cyclical, flatly asserting that the Church would continue to be a guiding hand in the lives of everyday people. While it wasn't openly said, it very much challenged Mussolini's claims to total power. And that kind of thing wouldn't be ignored. In September 1931, Mussolini imposed still more restrictions on the CA, Former members of the PPI, the old Catholic-based political party, would be barred from leadership positions in the group. The organization would dissolve its national leadership and leave management to unconnected regional leaders. Activity would be limited to social functions devoted to religion and morality. This was accepted by the church, but as the Pope later pointed out, all of its activity was of a religious and moral character, and Catholic action continued largely as it had before. Neither side, though, wanted to provoke a war in the streets over the hearts and minds of the people, both fearing that they might lose such a struggle. Important to note that even as Mussolini projected an image of strength, he was deeply sensitive to public opinion. Clergy sympathetic to the fascists managed to soothe Mussolini's concerns while simultaneously convincing the Pope to continue working within the Lateran framework. The Church would continue to advocate compliance with the regime, but at the same time guarded its own privileges from them. While the relationship would remain uneasy at times, the Church would never directly challenge Mussolini's claims to absolute power, which, at the end of the day, satisfied Il Duce. The 
pretensions towards absolute power in the years of economic crisis also marked a shift in how Mussolini related to both the nation and those around him. Before, he had been a sociable and outgoing dictator, a script which was now flipped. He ensconced himself in the Palazzo Venezia, a former papal palace that had recently been restored and was just northwest of the ruins of the old Roman Forum and Colosseum, latter of which was now visible down the new thoroughfares completed by the state's public works projects. Inside his new halls, he would cut the image of a distant, regal figure, and any visitor seeking an audience with him would be inspired with equal measures, anticipation, and dread. That was the idea, at least. This was also when his classic image of having a shaved head, jutting chin, and granite-like features were really played up. This distant figure was not just a creation of propaganda, either. Mussolini personally took on more and more of the workload of managing the state, and removed much of his old guard. The fanatically loyal Storacci was placed in charge of the party, Italo Bilbao was removed as chief of the Air Force when he debated too often with Il Duce and was packed off to manage Libya. Dino Grande was made foreign minister in 1929, but then demoted to ambassador to the UK in 1931 after he had finished overhauling the staff of his ministry. The list went on, and the men remaining by the time of the 30s were either fanatically loyal to Mussolini personally or fearful of him. The power in Italy had become vested in the state, and the state was now vested in the hands of Mussolini. And despite the shortcomings and reality of that personal authority, Mussolini by 1932 was prepared to start utilizing his power to mobilize his people. The consolidation of the economy, the binding of the people to his ideology, and the constant calls to action for the people to work diligently to reinforce the state, well, these were not just tools to combat the Depression. The global nature of the economic crisis had weakened the victors of World War I to such an extent that the early 30s appeared to be the window that Mussolini had been waiting for. The weakness of the status quo's keepers appeared to be demonstrated in September 1931 when the Japanese launched an invasion of the Chinese region of Manchuria. That's something I'll be getting to in a series after next, but for our purposes the brazen act of aggression was met with inaction. Oh, certainly there was outrage, but when the matter came before the League, action was delayed in favor of investigations. And even when the results came back against the Japanese, Manchuria had already been lost, and the Japanese delegation simply withdrew from the League. Relations were strained, but the aggressor had gotten away with it. The great and terrible quest to throw down the Versailles system was already underway. In this, Mussolini's ambitions stretched far to the east and south, and combined ideas for both territorial conquest and political domination. This was the moment when Mussolini began toying with the idea of making fascism an international movement, and he began referring to the Depression as a great crisis of liberal capitalism. Fascist capitalism would make it just fine, and other nations should join in with him. He supported the dictatorship of Miguel Primo de Rivera in Spain before turbulence there established a Second Republic, a prelude to his future support of Franco. He entertained visitations from a traveling Oswald Mosley, whose visit to Italy helped cement his decision to found the British Union of Fascists. When some of the veteran legions in France grew fed up with the Republic, he kept up contacts and some modest financial support for them. His more direct moves came in Central Europe, blending his new support of foreign fascism with Italy's diplomatic interests. The northernmost sphere of influence of Italy comprised both Austria and Hungary, formerly Italy's primary rivals back in the days of the Habsburgs. 
but both nations have been stripped of their imperial pretensions and have been reduced to such a state that Italy could exert its influence over them. This influence was carefully guarded as the two nations formed gateways deeper into Central Europe, gateways that were also coveted by Germany to the north. Believe it or not, but it would be some time before Italo-German rapprochement would see the two sides become close allies. Before the Rome-Berlin axis, there were deep suspicions over German motives. Obviously, they wanted to annex Austria, which was bad enough, but German nationalists also wanted to regain the South Tyrol. And even while the Weimar Republic was still around, there was diplomatic friction over the fascists' Italianization policies in that region. As a means to better secure its grip on the region, the regime was restricting the use of German in public life, hoping to stamp out the culture entirely. This would remain a sticking spot between the two nations, and it was only after the rise of Adolf Hitler and the Nazis that the matter was dropped. While his own party favored regaining South Tyrol, Hitler himself was an admirer of Mussolini's and didn't think the patch of mountains was worth alienating a powerful neighbor and a potential friend. That being said, friendship was off the table so long as the fate of Austria remained in the balance. In February 1934, Mussolini reaffirmed Austrian independence in a joint resolution with the UK and France, and then in March signed the Rome Protocols with Austria and Hungary, which called for cooperation among the three if any of them were to be threatened by another party. The fascistic Heimwehr paramilitaries were provided with funding in Austria, and when Engelbert Dolfus launched his coup in that country in 1932 and established an authoritarian dictatorship that was its own brand of fascism, Mussolini was right there to embrace him. Above all, Austria was an excellent buffer zone between Italy and Germany. It was overwhelmingly mountainous and virtually impossible to strike through if one held the handful of mountain passes leading south. Mussolini correctly saw Germany as the key to the balance of power in Europe, but even under the Nazis, he wasn't sure if that would play to Italy's advantage. Hungary represented a malleable, downright, desperate associate. It had territorial claims on all its neighbors, and its relations with them were so bad that they all allied with each other to block any revanchist ambitions. Hungary had no friends, as even Germany was more interested in befriending Yugoslavia and Romania. And I'm going to be upfront, the Italians weren't terribly enthusiastic about partnering up with them either. Mussolini had in fact dodged their overtures through the back half of the 20s, and the chief of the army, Pietro Badoglio, referred to their military value as being equivalent to a sack of beans. But the fascist cause was growing in popularity in Hungary, something I'll be getting to in a few weeks, and Italy's main target for expansion in the east was Yugoslavia, so keeping the Hungarians close made a degree of sense. And speaking of Yugoslavia, they continued to be an obsession of Italian nationalists. And once it came time to start being more aggressive during the Depression, it became a focus of Italian subversion. Italian diplomats intrigued relentlessly with minority groups that suddenly were left with even less of a voice within their homeland on account of Yugoslavian King Alexander declaring a royal, royal dictatorship in 1929. Bulgarians in northern Macedonia... Albanians in Kosovo, and Bosnian Muslims were all supported in efforts to detach themselves from Belgrade. The big interference was in Croatia, where the fascists took in Ante Pavlic, which is a name that's going to be coming up again in the future. He was the founder and leader of the Ustashi, an organization of Croatian fascists. If that name summons images of war crimes so bad that even the SS told them to chill out, yep, they're the same guys. The Ustashi advocated violent secession from Yugoslavia, and understandably, Pavlic was in exile and wanted by the Yugoslav government. 
He set himself up in Italy, where Mussolini provided him with money, weapons, and bases in northeastern Italy to train his followers in terrorist tactics. This level of support went above and beyond the other groups, who could mostly expect some money thrown their way, maybe a handful of small arms, and some intelligence to aid whatever petty scheme they were hatching. This was a lot more than that, and represented a clear investment on Mussolini's part. The problem, as always, was France. If not for French guarantees, well, Italy wouldn't have even bothered with the, with the Ustashi and instead would have just invaded Yugoslavia outright. But Italian generals dreaded any conflict with France, understandably, and part of Mussolini's reproachment with Hitler over German aggression in Central Europe was in the belief that Italy would get its share of spoils in the southeast, a level of expansion that would require cover from the Germans against the French. And the other target on Mussolini's list is the one he actually went with attacking in the mid-30s, Ethiopia. I know I didn't give them an intro episode last season, and as we get closer to the Italian invasion, I'll be sure and rectify that because it is a truly fascinating country in a unique position in the world. Ethiopia presented the clearest opportunity for quick expansion to test how tolerant the other great powers would be of aggression. They were a member of the League of Nations, having been sponsored by France to check Italian ambitions, but the UK had joined Italy in voicing reservations about their membership. It was only a befuddling reversal of opposition on the part of Mussolini in the early 20s that got them into the League, which demonstrated that Il Duce's ambitions were originally focused on the Adriatic and Aegean first, Africa second. But as apprehensions over Europe grew, the chances of the UK and France splitting their attentions for the sake of an African nation became more remote. A victory there would also erase the stain on Italian honor from its failure to invade the country back in 1896. Ethiopia was a rugged, populous, and large country, factors that kept it from being conquered by Europeans previously. But Mussolini was determined to expand somewhere, and the only independent African state was isolated enough from the rest of the world that its subjugation wouldn't really change the balance of power. Moreover, Ethiopia lacked modern institutions in the early 30s. Infrastructure was poor, the ability of the nation's emperor to exert authority was questionable, and the gap in military technology vis-a-vis -vis the Italians had only grown since 1896. That might not have held true forever, though, as Mussolini was perturbed by reports coming from Ethiopia that the nation might have been trying to modernize. His primary henchman in East Africa, Emilio de Bono, advised that it was unlikely that it would upset the Italian position too much. But Mussolini was thinking in terms of expansion, not detente. When we return to Italy later this season and they get their own dedicated miniseries, we'll take a look at their military buildup, which would culminate in El Duce's great triumph of the period, and one of the more shameful displays of acquiescence from the West during an era full of them. Next week, though, we'll be continuing our Era of Depression tour by crossing the Adriatic and returning to two countries in the crosshairs of the Italians, Yugoslavia and Greece. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.